Hello. Welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. This is Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine American Library Association. I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. We have a great episode lined up, for it, so please just sit back, relax, and we'll take it from here. 2017 marks the 30-year anniversary of Women's History Month. I know that, that that number seems relatively short. It's it's kind of unbelievable to think that this annual observance, embrace, and celebration of the vital role that women have played throughout American history, it's only been recognized for, or at least officially recognized, for such a short period of time, since Congress passed Public Law 100-9, which designated March 1987 as officially Women's History Month. And you have subsequent Congresses and Presidents furthering the action and here we are today. Now that number, 30 years, it, it's, it, it's a short period of time, but there's hundreds and hundreds of years of history to, to recognize and to think about and to contemplate and, and celebrate throughout the month of March. And that's what we did at American Libraries. If you head to AmericanLibraries.org, you can find some really great uh, programming tips for your library for, uh, for next uh, Women's History Month. And uh, we also decided to, to bring that to Dewey Decibel for this month. Um, and of course, you know, we know that uh, Women's History Month is wrapping up, but that's not going to stop us. This month on the Dewey Decibel Podcast, we spotlight two authors whose new works look at inspiring women today and throughout history. First, I talked to Julie Fowdy. She's an ESPN sports analyst, reporter, retired Olympic soccer player, and honorary chair of this year's National Library Week. Julie and I discuss her advocacy work and her new book, Choose to Matter, Being Courageously and Fabulously You, which is published by Disney Publishing Worldwide. Uh, in this book, Julie do t- details her sports days and interviews female leaders and role models who share with her their inspiring stories. Next, uh, American Library's associate editor Terry Dankowski talks to Donna Seaman. She's the adult books editor at Booklist Magazine, and they talk about her new book, Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists, published by Blooms- Bloomsbury USA. But first, before all that, here's a word from a sponsor. How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do libraries value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, have to say about shyness? All these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're at a public library serving one town or city, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. And that's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library community. Uh, They wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. So check out oc.lc slash next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. Julie Foudy is a retired American professional soccer player who uh, played for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team from 1987 through 2004. Uh, she participated in four Women's World Cups, 
three Olympics for the USA team, and she was inducted to the U.S. National Soccer Hall of Fame in 2007. Now, outside of her work on the field, she's also a tireless leadership advocate, uh, and she currently serves as a reporter and analyst for ABC and ESPN. And now she's added author to her resume with uh, the book Choose to Matter, Being Courageously and Fabulously You, which is coming out from Disney Publishing Worldwide on May 2nd. And in this book, Bowdy details her her life, and she shares inspiring interviews with a variety of women, uh, from Good Morning America's Robin Roberts to her former soccer teammate Mia Hamm and many more. I spoke with Julie recently about her work, her advocacy work, uh, her work on the field, her new book, and her role as Honorary Chair of 2017 Library Week, which is coming up April 9th through 15th. Uh, now, Julie, um, our listeners, uh, they may know you from your, your accomplishments on, on the soccer field and your work at ESPN as a reporter and analyst and your, your advocacy and activism work. Um, and now you've added author author to your list of accomplishments with Choose to Matter, your new book. It's where you interview 10 women, uh, including Mia Hamm and Alex Morgan, fellow soccer, soccer stars, uh, Robin Roberts from Good Morning America, Facebook CEO and lean-in founder Sheryl Sandberg, and many, many more about leadership and how to summon and unlock your inner potential. And i kind of like to dig into that book for a little bit. Um, and I guess, first of all, ask what was its inspiration? I guess, really, what, where did the mantra Choose to Matter come from? Uh, first of all, Phil, I call myself a very important author, V-I-A, for your reference. So, um, very important author. <laughs> yes, I have my kid. My kids call me that now. Uh, no, it, the, the mantra comes from actually um, summer camp we do. We do a leadership academy in the summer. We've been doing it for 10-plus years, and our tagline has always been uh, choose to matter with the kids because so much of our messaging from – our summer leadership academy, which is a combination of sports and leadership kind of weaved together for a week-long residential camp, uh, is that, you know, leadership is personal, not positional, that leadership is a choice, that, in fact, everyone can lead. You just have to have the courage to raise your hand and uh, and and say yes to it. And so that's why we say, you know, leadership is a choice, so why not choose to matter? Mm. Um and then that was where Disney said, we love that, you know, that slogan. Uh, can we use it for the book? I said, yeah, but it's awfully serious, you know, and that's the last thing I want this book to come across as because I know leadership and choosing to matter and, you know, it's it can be a heavy, serious topic that kids go, ah, you know, look, I'm only in high school. I'm, you know, I'm just a, a young woman or a young man starting my journey. That's a lot to take on. But um, but, but the book isn't at all like that. It's fun, and it's, you know, we, as you were saying, we, we wrapped a lot of my leadership thoughts around these amazing women who share their stories, and uh, we shot them on video, so we just launched a sock talk series. We do them all in our socks, which is fun. Feet up, shoes off. Mm-hmm. Not a scratch and sniff book, so that's the good news. And um, how did you choose the the, the ten women that you um, decided to feature in your book? You know, we many of them are friends. You know, Robin is a friend. Robin Roberts is a friend. Uh, Mia and Alex, of course, are friends. Um, but really, I wanted a a diverse cross section from people who uh, maybe are uh, others are, are very well aware of because they do work publicly on television or they've written like Sheryl Sandberg's book Lean In, which was a big influence in my life, uh, her thoughts on leadership, um, but also 
so much of our messaging is that you don't, you know, there's such a misconception that you need a microphone or you need to be famous to lead. And our the whole book is about how that's not the case. You can be anonymous and you can do it in a private way and you can do it, you know, very personally. You don't need to be an Olympic gold medalist or a celebrity on television to do that. And so we interviewed also uh, a dear friend with cerebral palsy who has the most positive outlook on life I've ever seen, who just inspires me daily. Amy Liz, we interviewed this amazing teenager from Afghanistan who's, who's similar to a, a Malala-like story. She overcame, you know, the Taliban, Taliban launching a rocket into her, her house um, and had to overcome some physical deformities that she suffered because of that. Uh, we interviewed this Irish teenage scientist who won this Google Award for the top teenage scientists in the world and her experiment and talking about all the things she's learned. It's so we, we kind of cross the globe and we also cross age spectrums, um, and, and really talk to just, you know, a really neat group of women. Mm-hmm. Now, of those of those ten interviews that you, you you touched on some of their stories and their background right now, is there anyone in particular that really uh, sticks out to you uh, that you'd like to tell um, our listeners about? Oh gosh, well, I mean, Robin's story, Robin Roberts is 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 one that always, whenever I sit down with her, I mean, people who follow Robin know pretty well where she mm-hmm. had, you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer back in two thousand seven, and then. And it was a really aggressive form of breast cancer, and she fights that, and she does it publicly on television. And then um, she's cleared and then finds out, you know, in 2012, five years later, that she has a second form of cancer uh, in her bone, and so she was fighting that. I mean, and and yet um, the thing that, you know, I always gravitate, gravitate towards with people is just that that attitude, which again is a choice in life, which is what a lot of the book is about, and that how in moments of crisis or adversity, uh, how these women react and how they get through those times and how they do it with such grace and such positivity, even though at times it clearly is not easy and it's the last thing on their minds is, you know, something positive, but how they are able to go to that because, you know, as we've seen over and over in life, if you can be positive in the face of adversity and chaos, then uh, I think those are your best leaders and those are your, your best examples for people who are just happiest in life. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you mentioned that this isn't, um, I mean, it's a serious topic, but it's not a serious book. It's not like a stuffy, serious um, leadership book because um, there, there are activities and exercises in the book as well. Can you um, talk about that a little bit? What can um, readers of Choose to Matter find in the book besides the stories? Yeah, well, it, well, first, just the look of it is, like, super colorful. There's quotes all over the place we pull out and uh, drawings, and it's it's as if I was kind of scratching and, and doodling in it as well and, you know, drawing arrows to stuff and commenting on stuff. And then my writing style, which Disney was so great about and ESPN, you know, my big pitch to them was, I, you know, I, I just don't want it, like, sparkly and glittery and perfect, right? It needs to be kind of raw and real in my voice, and I have a – pretty distinct tone in my voice when I write. And so, and they, uh, and they let me do all of that, which is, which is neat. So um, I think that comes across well. And then also, you know, as we've done for over 10 years at the Leadership Academy, so much of it is, is reflection and stopping and the craziness of life and saying, okay, I'm going to, you know, even if it's, I'm going to jot down these things quickly. So we give them a space in the book where we call it, don't just think it, ink it. 
um, sections at the end of each chapter. We do exercises at the end of each chapter, super fun, simple, quick stuff that we've done for years at the Leadership Academies. So the idea is not that it's, you know, a teacher standing in front of a whiteboard going, here are the 10 virtues of leadership that mm-hmm. you will memorize. It's, you know, how to be a better teammate and to be a better positive leader on your team. And there's a there's a progression to the curriculum. But the end game of it all, really, Phil, isn't just to be a better leader yourself. The whole end game of what we talk about in the book is, to be a better leader yourself that then goes and empowers others. And so there's a whole service component as well. There's a template. There's We break down how to put together a, a, a super simple leadership project that you could take back into your community. You could activate with your team or a group or a classroom you're with. So it's it's got a lot of hands-on stuff that um, is doable and realistic and fun that – Along the way, you go through this progression that hopefully at the end, you know, you're activating something in your community and you're choosing to matter. And that's really the goal of it all is is to really start this movement of, of young girls and, and women going into their communities and being, you know, active leaders. Oh, great. Um, now, as I mentioned, like you, um, you're, you are a fierce advocate and, and, and activist, um, in particular in um, uh, women's rights issues and sports and gender discrimination. And um, just a little background for our listeners. You served in 2002 on the Commission on Opportunity in Athletics. There's a panel that uh, reviewed the effects and implementation of Title IX, um, which, again, some background for our listeners. Uh, Title IX said that uh, uh, it states that no person in the U.S. shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied benefits of, or subjected to discrimination under any education program activity receiving federal financial assistance. And you notably, you refused to sign the commission's final report, saying they kind of downplayed mm-hmm. the persistence of gender-based discrimination and maybe even allowed for the continued uh, discrimination. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's been 15 years since you served on that panel, and I just want to know, what, how, how has the U.S. changed in the years since? Has the U.S. changed? Mm-hmm. Have you seen any improvements in gender-based discrimination in sports? Well, Title IX, you know, the interesting thing about Title IX when it was passed in 1972 was it was an educational reform law, right? It was for young women to get into mainly the universities because Senator Birch Bayh, who's largely considered the father of Title IX, he said to me once, you know, it was crazy because here me and my wife are applying for law schools and she's got better grades than I do and she's always been the smarter one in the family and I'm getting into every law school I apply and we're applying to the same law schools and she's not getting into any. And it hit me like, why is it that there is such a discrepancy with girls' admission into higher education? And he said, and so in fine print, we added that they also couldn't discriminate on the basis of gender with sports and sports participation. And those little words in fine print really have been one of the most profound civil rights laws we've had in this country because what happened is now universities had to add, you know, soccer programs for girls and they had to add volleyball and uh, everything, track, and all the things that, you know, they may have had, you know, uh, 15 programs for boys and three programs for girls, and now they're having, you know, uh, a more equal representation. So uh, in terms of how it's changed, I mean, even when we were fighting this 15 years ago, they were trying to roll back, 
some of the issues of Title IX, which we stopped them from doing, you know, you, you're seeing it. And the really the, the reason I, reason I have always advocated for this is it's not just about sports. Sports are great in 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 the physical sense of you're healthy and you're out there and you're playing. But also, I mean, there's so much data that supports if a girl plays sports, she just makes better life decisions. She's a better leader. She um, <clears throat> she's more likely to finish school, finish college, you know, all these positive signs, less likely to use drugs, less likely to get pregnant at an early age. I mean, you go down the list that teach you about life and how just to be a, you know, a strong leader in your community. And so that's what we were advocating for. And that's the great thing to see over the years of what Title IX has done. Is it all the way there with schools? There are still some Title IX issues, of course, that happen, but schools have gotten markedly better. Um, thankfully, I mean, it took them about 20 years to, to get into it, mm-hmm. um, but they have gotten markedly better, um, of course, with their opportunity and access for girls playing sports in colleges and and even younger in high school and below. And um, you, you mentioned briefly the uh, your, your leadership academy, the Julie Fowdy Sports Leadership Academy. Can you tell our, our listeners um, a bit about that? Because it seems like that's a, a kind of a it's, it grew out of your 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 activism work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I have been doing soccer camps for years before we launched the leadership academies, and I just thought when I retired, I retired after the 2004 Olympics. And I I had played on the U.S. team for almost two decades, like 17 years on the U.S. women's soccer team, and one of the gifts I felt like was this that you know it taught me how to be a strong people and giving a talk I was okay with. And I learned all these things by playing. But I felt like so much of what we were teaching kids was, you know, how to kick a soccer ball, which is, you know, is important. But really the beauty of sports is all the other things it gives you. And so we said, why don't we launch something that combines leadership and sports together? And we do it in a really fun, silly environment that's high energy and hands-on and interactive so we launched these 10 years ago, and we do it with soccer and lacrosse. Eventually, I'd love to do it with volleyball and basketball, and you go down the line of all the sports you could do it with because it transfers to all sports. But half the day you spend doing your sport, and the other half of the day we do really fun leadership. And it follows the same kind of progression that the book follows. That's where a lot of our curriculum came from, um, about going back into their community and launching a project and all these things that, um, we go through at the Leadership Academy, but it's it's fun. We do it every summer. I, you know, my my real job is ESPN, but we do these as kind of a hobby in the summer. Um, and it's just been so rewarding for us and for me as well to watch the girls really transform over a week with us in terms of confidence. Because you know, I think a young kid they hear it from parents, they hear it from teachers that yeah, you can you can go out there and you can make a difference in this life. But if you show them these stories of people who were quiet or who maybe didn't have all the leadership tendencies that we think we need to have or maybe weren't the most confident, and there they are making a difference in this world simply because they cared enough to raise their hand, that's a, a really powerful thing for a young girl to see, and it's transformational. It's been fun to watch it happen in just a week. Absolutely. Um, now, you are, you're serving as the Honorary Chair of National Library Week this year, and um, let's, let's talk a little bit about libraries. Um, what li- impact did libraries have, I guess, on your, on your life growing up, and uh, what role do they play in your life today? Well, I grew up in, in Mission Viejo. We're actually, you know, doing something with the Mission Viejo Library as well, um, which was my, my little local library um, that I 
spent many, many hours at, and, and, you know, back in the day where you had to go find the cards and you couldn't look up anything <laughs> digitally. It's so embarrassing yeah. when you I think remember. about <laughs> those days. Um, but now, you know, when I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm nearby in Southern California in San Clemente and we have a great uh, library here. Um, that we're constantly taking the kids to. It had this awesome little kids section we used to sit and read in all the time. And, and it's not just, I think, the thing that um, excites me the most about the National Library Week is um, breaking down this perception that libraries are kind of stuffy, quiet places that you can't do a lot of interactive things. Uh, and talking to kids and to adults about all the possibilities that exist at libraries and that um, – it's an enjoyable place that they should take their kids and they should spend more time and they can do a variety of things besides, you know, being told they have to be quiet, which is what a lot of young kids associate libraries with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I think that's that's all I have for today. Julie, thanks so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. No problem. No problem. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Julie Foudy for speaking with the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Her book, Choose to Matter, Being Courageously and Fabulously You, will be available from Disney Publishing Worldwide on May 2nd. The Global Library Event of the Year, the ALA Annual Conference and Exhibition, is coming up fast. June 22nd through 27th in Chicago, fast. And I hope you're ready, because we really have a spectacular set of programs lined up for the 2017 conference. Thousands of scheduled programs, forums, and panels. An exhibit hall packed with vendors showcasing the latest in technology, publishing, and more. And a truly awesome set of speakers this year, including Sarah Jessica Parker, Rishma Sojani, Gene Yang, Colson Whitehead, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Nikki Giovanni, and many, many more. You can find more info about the 2017 ALA Annual Conference Exhibition, and that's coming up again June 22nd through 27th in Chicago. And you can register for the conference at alaannual.org. That's alaannual.org. We'll see you in Chicago. Who hasn't wondered where, aside from maybe Georgia O'Keeffe and Frida Kahlo perhaps, where all the women artists are? In many art books, they're marginalized with cold efficiency, dismissed in the captions of group photos with the phrase, identity unknown, while each male in the photos uh, is named. Donna Seaman, adult books editor to ALA's own bookless magazine, looks into this, this phenomenon and brings to life seven of these forgotten artists in her new book, Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists, which is published by Bloomsbury USA. American Libraries Associate Editor Tara Dankowski sat down with Donna here at Dewey Decibel headquarters to talk about her book, uh, the research process, her influences, and much more. I'm here with Donna Seaman, who is the editor for Adult Books for Booklist, and she has a new book out, uh, Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists. The book was released by Bloomsbury last month. Donna, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um, you're usually the one interviewing authors. How does it feel to be doing press for the book right now? That's right. Uh, switching roles. It's been very enjoyable. I really um, like a chance to talk about my own work, and I love interviews. I love the conversations. So. Excellent. Yeah. Now, your previous books were Writers on the Air, mm-hmm. and that features interviews uh, that you did with authors um, on air. And uh, you also had In Our Nature, which is a collection of short stories that you edited 
Um, so how did you decide that you wanted to cover female visual artists for this book? Yeah, so um, people who know me know me as a book person, a big literary type, but um, art's always been part of my life. My mother's an artist, so I grew up with a woman artist at work, and um, I've always been very, maybe not quite equally passionate about visual arts, but super involved in them, and I, in fact, went to art school, which always surprises people since I've been at Booklist so long, and I'm such a book person. That's but a little-known fact. It's a very little-known fact, and I... That was a great experience and a tremendous education, and I kind of knew most of the time that my language skills were stronger than my art skills. However, the experience of being in the studio and making things really stayed with me. And I've been thinking about writing about artists for a long, long time. Excellent. Um, so the title of your book, Identity Unknown, which I kind of love this, um, it comes from history's propensity to issue these rather dismissive um, photo captions for women. Um, can you explain the title a little bit more and, um, you know, how you came up with it and decided to run with it and how it connects to the artists on the book? Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's funny talking about art school. I have vivid memories, even though it's been a while. I've always haunted libraries. I've been spent many, many hours of my life in libraries. And so, too, when I was an art student. And I would look at art history books. And, you know, this was pre-personal computers and internet, so those were the big resource. And I would be through them, I was always very curious about artists' lives, and there'd be these group portraits of artists, mostly males, and they'd all be nicely identified beneath the photograph, this is so-and-so, you know, on and on, and then there'd be a woman, and the caption would say, identity unknown. And I just, that stayed with me all these years, it was infuriating. And even then I thought, really, you could not find out who this woman, nobody remembers who this woman was. So a mix of skepticism and amusement uh, made me think of that title when I uh, was fortunate enough to finally be able to do this book. That's amazing. Actually, you know, that really resonated with me because, um, I don't know if you saw this, but not too long ago, um, there was a photograph of um, Senators uh, Bernie Sanders, John McCain, and Amy Klobuchar, and they, the caption was, a woman with Senators... <gasps> no, no, no! Yes! <laughs> a woman with Senators a Bernie woman. Sanders and John McCain. And after a, few more re a little bit more research, they, they, figured out. they put the Senator's name in. And I was just An like, it's still senator. happening. It's, it's still, still happening. Oh, it is. Uh, it is, in every way. And women artists are just as... Um, you know, represented as lesser percentage of men as years ago when I was in art school. Wow. It hasn't changed. Um, so you said in your introduction that, uh, you know, you chose to highlight artists who have personally affected you. Um, did you take any special considerations and narrowing it down to these seven women in the 20th century? I imagine it's, you know, for an art person, it's hard to pick <laughs> se seven women that you want to focus on. That's right. I had a very long list of potential candidates. I did, I, so I set up some criteria. I decided that I would write about um, artists that were no longer living, uh, which really li interestingly limited some of my options, which I realized right away. Um, I also decided that I was very interested in writing about people that really worked physically. 
that painted or built things that had to deal with the real world, you know, materials and had to have space to work in, as opposed to photographers or filmmakers. Or, and this is partly my interest in how life has changed so much for us with our screen lives. And, our, and I spent all my life next to a computer. So, you know, that was me remembering when um, I didn't used to do that, when I was more of a three-dimensional person out in the world and dealing with um, tools and materials. So I wanted to think about that some more, about what a life is like when it's much more tangible and physical than so many of ours now. So that led me to painters and sculptors. And I also was interested in, I very much intended from the start to include a fiber artist because textile art was a big interest of mine way back when I was um, in high school. And, uh, and I've always loved Lenore Tawney's work. So, um, someone, so the two, Louise Nevelson and the, the first and the last actual artists in the book actually, um, are artists I've just thought about for many years. And then in between were artists I came across and just thought were fascinating. That's kind of cool to like fill in. Yeah, I never even thought of that before yeah. until we were just talking. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned your mother, um, mm -hmm. an artist, Elaine Seaman, in your um, in your introduction. Now, did she have any influence on kind of the origins of the book or or maybe just like the kind of art that you've always gravitated to? Oh, yeah, good question. She definitely has, I mean, she has something to do with everything in my life. I was very aware that for my mother and her friends, my mom um, founded an artist co-op 35 years ago because there were so few opportunities for artists of any gender to show their work where I grew up um, in Poughkeepsie on the Hudson River. And um, I was very aware as a girl that my mother felt very um, torn between her uh, responsibilities as a parent and um, housekeeper and also active in the community and um, as an artist. So I saw the conflict there and, um, and, and that generation was still much more duty bound and more traditional, I would say, even though my mother's a complete feminist and a very um, liberal political uh, person. But, it was a quandary for her, and I was aware of that because I got to go to art school and she never did, so uh, that just always stayed with me. I also absolutely, to this day, love her work. It's beautifully detailed, just exquisite, and very refined, very innovative technically, too, and that just always impressed me, so she set a high bar for my future interest in artists. I'll say. <laughs> Do you feel like the artists that um, that you cover in your book represent a broad range of, um, you know, we talked about your kind of criteria uh, in terms of their styles, the media they used, um, the locations and, and scenes where they were kind of active? Do you think um, do you think you've kind of spanned the gamut? And, and, and maybe even in terms of the recognition that they've gotten, because you talk about wanting to cover people who um, they weren't unknowns right. in their time, but you know we've kind of forgot. History has kind of forgotten about them. So yes, exactly. Um, I you know there is a <clears throat> some spectrum. There could be more, but <clears throat> because these profiles became long, <laughs> because I was doing a lot of original research or just writing about these artists in ways they hadn't been written about before, I wanted to take as much space as I needed. So um, so that kept me to a lower number than I originally intended. Um, I also, you know, as a New Yorker, <laughs> know that this is actually a very big country and there's art being made everywhere. So I wanted to get out of the typical New York-centric art um, history approach, although Louise Nevelson um, <clears throat> is the best known in the book and was a New York star, um, of course. but. 
I wanted to spread out. I certainly wanted to write about some Chicago uh, artists. That was important to me. And also, um, you know, as varied a spectrum of styles and approaches as I could come up with in that small group and, and given my own interests. <clears throat> and the other aspect of this was what initially started me thinking about this was the fact that Louise Nevelson was such a superstar. I mean, when I was a girl, she was just everywhere. And in fact, became so famous for herself, her, her extravagant appearance, her sort of empress-like attitude. Um, it's almost like her work became invisible even while she was still around. And then after she died, um, she was just quickly erased. And I, that was a sort of stunning to me that someone who could be that well known, I would, you know, I mean, even after I came to Booklist, which has been a long time now, I routinely just turned to books about modern art and look for her. You know, it's like you look for somebody you love. And I'm like, well, oh, Nevelson has to be in here, and she would not be in there. And this would happen over and over. So rather than being interested in completely un discovered artist, which is a whole different quest, which is a very worthy one, I became intrigued by this idea that you could get there, you could make it, which is so difficult, and then poof, you're done. It's over. Nobody's heard of you. And each of these artists attained some degree of recognition, even if it was very local, like Gertrude Abercrombie, <clears throat> one of the Chicago painters in the book, <coughs> excuse me, um, is was very well known just in Chicago, kind of. So that was a frustration to her, of course. But there, she accomplished enough so that I could find things out about her. That was the other kind of thing about this, the kind of research I was doing. There had to be something to research. You you know, named some of the women that you feature in this book, and there are intensely personal descriptions. I, and, and I think that's to your credit. You know, the book is so well-researched. Um, there's such a, I think you weave like a really great, um, you weave really great connections, you know, to their contemporaries too, to oh, kind of, to kind of root them um, to names that we know, actually. Uh, how did you go about researching this book? Um, and of course, I'm going to ask a question, were libraries involved? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm um, obligated. Yes, of course. And I, I share your obligation and um, my passion for libraries. I love that you notice that I very deliberately bring as many other people into the stories as I can because artists, no matter how alone you are in your studio, you usually have some constellation around you, you know, even if you're not really close to people or perhaps you are. Art is a conversation just like literature is. So you make art because you care about art and you're looking at art and uh, most likely you're in a circle of artists. And um, the artists in this book, some of them have very, very close relationships, maybe just to a couple of artists. It was another way to smuggle in some other women artists, too, so I could tell their life stories. Um, so I did a lot of that. The research um, in, certainly involved libraries. In fact, I'm very grateful to the American Library Association Library, where I would go after hours. And um, they were the librarians here were so kind to me, they would um, request microfilm, remember microfilm, from the um, Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institute. And oh, that's I would so cool. sit here when everyone else was gone in the dark, rolling through <laughs> microfilm, um, reading all these you know, documents people have not looked at in years and years, I'm quite sure. I did um, you know, a lot of online research, of course. And there were, like Joan Brown, one of the painters in the book, she's a Bay Area artist, there was a university press book about her that came out. Oh, it could have been 20 years ago. It was long out of print. Interestingly enough, it's coming back in print, I believe. But um, so I had read that book and 
that was an important resource to me, and then it led me to lots of other things. So I couldn't have done this book without the internet, really, because as you know, and we said earlier, I'm always at book list, so I couldn't just disappear for six months and go into actual archives. Um, but for profiles, for what I was doing, that was enough. There was plenty of information to work from. And I also did some interviews, and I did, um, you know, museum visits and archive visits and things like that as well, which were very exciting and fun. Um, but libraries absolutely were essential. That's great. Um, and you got to interview some family members, too, of the I artists, right? family members and people that were, um, you know, ran trusts or foundation in memory of the artists, some curators. Um, That's so, so cool. Yeah, it was great. Um, did you get to see, did you discover any um, new artwork from these artists, you know, either in your research or up close that you hadn't seen before or something um, something that you weren't expecting over the course of your research? Yes, I did. You know, I was very, very lucky. I was um, <clears throat> spent some time in Springfield, Illinois, at the Illinois State Museum, and they had rather amazing collection of Gertrude Abercrombie's things. The, I guess the most exciting was these old family photo albums, which nobody there had even looked at, you know, just between us and anyone else who's listening. Um, because, you know, the, the museums have so much stuff, and they, they're actually... The, um, because we're having a budget crisis in the state of Illinois, they were very understaffed. It was um, really sad because they own amazing things. But um, these photo albums were big, and they'd been shoved in this, these boxes. And you know, I was able to just go through those. And that was really amazing. And they also had a lot of drawings and and um, different types of work of Abercrombie's that I had not been aware of. So that was really fun. I went to the Art Institute of Chicago, and um, you have to apply. It's a whole process to be able to see works in storage. And they brought some Lenore Tawney pieces out. She's the fiber artist that nobody there had seen because they were too young. I mean, these things have been put away for decades. Wow. And I was shocked at what they had and, and are not able to display for one reason or another. Maybe now they will. But that was very thrilling. And um, <clears throat> when I went to the Lenore Tawney Foundation in New York, the director there showed me all sorts of personal effects. And that was really exciting, too. And I didn't. there were aspects of Tawney's creative life I didn't know about. So. It's so personal and yeah. special. Very much so. I uh, I know you say in the book, you know, you are a feminist. The text isn't uh, necessarily a feminist polemic. Um, but even still, like, how do you think we as a culture can start giving better credit to the mm -hmm. amazing work that women are doing? Oh, isn't it a, just incredible? I mean, I think it was just yesterday. Remember the Equal Rights Amendment? I think, was it Nebraska or Nevada or some state like that, just passed it. You know, that's been going on my whole life, trying yeah. to pass an amendment that just says that women are equal to men. How is that even possible? I just, um, you know, I, I do say this is not a political book, but um, of course the whole premise of the book is what gives? How, why does this persist? Um, you know, decade after decade, generation after generation, that women are somehow always uh, less than men. And we know that's not true in daily life, and you and I are very fortunate to work in an association where that is clearly not true. Yeah. But um, out in the world it really is, and um, I think that I, it was interesting when my book came out, I found myself sort of emerging from a cave, if you will, and standing beside all these other amazing writers who were doing bi group biographies of women. There was um, Dava Sobel's The Glass Universe, which was uh, about women working at the Howard, uh, the Harvard Observatory. Now they're um, doing um, calculating all the 
findings from the telescope there that were really difficult to understand, high mathematics, just like hidden figures, all the women at NASA. And there were a bunch of, there was a book about English, overlooked English writers, women writers. And I felt like there's, it's sort of another wave. There's always these waves of feminism, these um, waves of women's history where a bunch of people working independently, but out of the same urge to balance things, start doing all this work. And I feel like there's sort of this wave of this now. And I'm very happy to be part of that. And I hope it makes some difference. And libraries have certainly been recommending these books and um, sharing them. And I think I love the whole group biography form. I think it's really, it lets you see things in context and lots of contrasts and comparisons, but also uh, continuity. So. Maybe we're going to make a little baby step again. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Donna, thank you so much for speaking with me. Um, this is a great book. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your contribution. And uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Tara. It was great talking to you. I love your perspective. That was author and bookless editor Donna Seaman talking to Dewey Decimal correspondent Tara Dankowski. Donna's new book, Identity Unknown, Rediscovering Seven American Women Artists, is available now from Bloomsbury, USA. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'd like to thank Julie Fowdy and Donna Seaman for talking with us, and I'd like to thank you for spending some time with us this month. Join us next month as we look at the future of libraries. We have some interviews with uh, urban thinker, designer, and author Ryan Gravel, Miguel Figueroa, he's the head of the ALA Center for the Future of Libraries, and many more. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We're out there in the social media world. Give us a shout. Let us know what you think of the show and uh, what you'd like to see on future episodes. We really we want to hear from you. And iTunes listeners, please give us a review. It really helps with our link rankings, and it allows us to reach more ears. So please do that if you can. We appreciate it. Again, I'm Phil Morehart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. If you can be positive in the face of adversity and chaos. And uh, I think those are your best leaders and those are your best examples for people who are just happiest in life. Mm-hmm.